0: Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to take a look at what high-value products are like? What does it mean to find a high value RPG product that we can use in our game? We're going to dive into this idea of valuable products. What makes them valuable? What kind of product is most valuable? We're also going to look at the eight steps and how you actually use them. It's one thing to use the eight steps to prepare for your game, but what are the expectations about how the eight steps actually manifest at the table itself? And we're going to cover the remainder of the questions from the 2023 October Patreon Q&A, all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in role-playing games. This show, like all of the work that I do, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to a monthly Q&A, a dedicated Discord server, the City of Arches sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a bunch of tools, tips, tricks to help you run your game, but most of all, they help me put on shows like this. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your outstanding support. Last week... I did a deep dive into the Planescape box, uh, the, the Planescape slip case product that Wizards of the Coast released for Planescape. And I talked about it as a matter of value. Was it worth it? And my conclusion from that thing, from that from that deep dive, was if you have to ask if it's worth it, it probably isn't worth it. Because it was 85 bucks for 256 pages of material, a good deal of which, more than half of it was monsters and an adventure, and probably a little bit more than a third of it was actual source book material and I would have preferred to have a great big source book material and I would prefer not to pay 85 bucks but when we talk about the value of a product I've, I've had other conversations with other folks going on talking about this topic further and I thought it was worth a conversation to dig in deeper into what, me, what it means to have a high value product and one of my conclusions for example is that I feel like Eberron rising from the last war is the last best value we're going to see from Wizards of the coast maybe ever and the reason i bring that up is i think we got a tremendous deal and a tremendous benefit that you can still get on today with eberron rising from the last war and i say that because it is primarily a source book so it's primarily material that you can use and remix and dive into to build your own adventures it's 320 pages it had a lar- a smaller font size which means per word it had more words per page than current products do and it was only 50 bucks. So that I don't think we're ever going to see anything like Eberron Rising from the Last War from Wizards again. The, the current books that we're seeing are generally 256 pages with a larger font size and cost $60. So that's one where right off the bat, we can look at them and say, the value that you get from Eberron Rising from the Last War, I don't think we're going to see it again. And so what does that mean for like other products though? Because there are other products. Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft was a book that I think is outstanding. I reviewed it. I loved it. And they, it was on sale recently for 12 bucks on Amazon. Somebody's getting ripped off because $12 on Amazon is crazy, crazy cheap. I bought two extra copies just to give away to friends when the timing is right. I just bought two of them because I'm like $12. It's crazy, crazy cheap. That deal is probably better than what you get with Eberron Rising from the Last War, but only because of crazy Amazon shenanigans where it was down to 12 bucks, right? That, that, I don't even know that that really counts. But that, the difference between Van Richten's Guide, which I think is the best book Wizards has put out in the last few years, comparing it to Eberron is it's like two thirds the size and maybe even half if you include the font size difference. So like there's a lot less material overall in Van Richten's Guide than there was in Eberron Rising from the Last War overall. But when we talk about what that value means, there's a few things that we want to consider. So I've been basing it a lot on cost, word count, number of pages, things like that, right? Just because it's like, however we argue about what kind of material is in a book, you know, more pages, more words per page is more material than another book that has a fewer words per page for fewer pages and costs more, right? You, you could just hold them in your hand sideways and look at them. Now you can't do that with Planescape because it's, 60% cardboard, but generally speaking, you can look at the actual books and the page counts for the books, and you can see whether it's value. That gets beyond like what kind of material is on a page. But I do feel, and I'll, I'll offer this up as one main observation I have as far as the value of material, I find source book material to be significantly more valuable than almost any other kind of material that are produced for role-playing games. Now, core rules are obviously really, really important and valuable. So you got to have the core rules and those core rules, even if you don't have anything else, you can go find your lore elsewhere and build adventures based on that lore from those core books. So the core books, are probably by far the biggest value that you're going to get. Now, a lot of the material you get in core books are now free online, so there's that too. But the core books you're going to get a significant value from. Your initial monster books are extremely valuable because all of those monsters can be used in your game. There's usually hundreds of them in a book. You can reskin them into other things. You can use the mechanics for other things. They almost all have descriptions of the monsters that could lead into specific adventures. So if you think about a monster book as a prompts as prompts for adventures, there are hundreds of them in a monster book. So your initial monster book is a tremendous value. Every additional monster book you get reduces that value because you're adding those monsters into your overall monster pool monster books still are very valuable because of that idea of adding extra lore having new monsters with interesting mechanics new art that you can use or show to your players for the kinds of monsters you're fighting so monsters books as you can tell because monster books are very popular if you look at a lot of times monster books when they hit kickstarter and stuff like that they sell very well if you look at like the number of reviews and sales rankings for things like monster books they tend to do better than other kinds of books the next one i would offer there's another kind of book that's also really valuable and that's crunch character crunch books Xanathar's guide Tasha's the tome of the tome of heroes from from Kobold Press books that offer new character options are extremely valuable. They're particularly valuable to players because they extend the length of the game. They extend the duration of your overall time to play with a system. I don't know if 5e would be nearly as popular as it is if a book like Xanathar's Guide hadn't come out and added a whole bunch of new subclasses. It sort of multiplies the space and it makes the game, the crunchiness of the game bigger. It means players are going to be more engaged with the game. They're going to want to try new things and they have all new options that they can try to when they're playing the game itself so those crunch books are pretty valuable as well i still say from a gm perspective source books are extremely high value and it's because when you buy a source book when you buy like a world book the world book contains all of the lore that you can wrap around your entire game and your entire campaign. It's got gods and religions. It's got histories. It's got locations. It's got people and demographics. It's got wars and political strife. It's got lots and lots of stuff that you can use and directly use in the game that you're going to run. You can flavor all of the rest of the game that you got. All the mechanics are just the mechanics. And if all you had were the mechanics the same way every time, it'd be kind of boring. But when you wrap them in all of the lore of the these campaign books you get a tremendous value out of that you get the whole game feels different the the lore the the regions feel different the way the characters are interacted with the world are different all of the stuff they learn when they're delving deep into the dungeons all of those are different which is why i find source books world source books to be of tremendous value and in fact i argue far more valuable than an adventure even big campaign adventures because 10 big campaign adventures you might harvest them for parts but once you've harvested those parts you've used them they're they're used up up. you may run it roughly as is or close to as is and then once you've run it you're kind of done you're probably not going to take it off the shelf and run it again you're not going to go run it again and again and again that eberron book i could run 10 campaigns out of it i could use it for 30 years and not expend all of the information that's in it but if i take an adventure book like tomb of annihilation once i've run it once or maybe twice i'm probably done with it and if you're not going to run an adventure it's worth very very little even when you kind of steal it for parts but i think Source books are far better to steal steal from parts. Now, one of the arguments when I said things like, you know, Planescape is 85 bucks and it's not worth it was, well, if you run it, it's worth it. Because think about the number of hours of entertainment that you get out of that product that you pay 85 bucks. But let's say you run it for 12 sessions. Let's say you run three hour sessions for 12 sessions. And let's say you have six players at your table. That's 216 hours worth of entertainment that you get out of that book which is roughly $0.40 cents an hour. So you're like, how's that compared to like going to a movie or buying a video game or any other source of entertainment for the $0.39? For the I think this is kind of a flawed argument, though. And the reason why is I could run anything. I could make my own campaign up. I don't have to run that book. So it's not that I buy the product at the store and I take it home and I open it up and it explodes outwards. And as it explodes out on the table, my friends and I are just floating around the table going, wow, this is so much fun. No, I'm a GM. I have to take the material in that book and I have to run it at the table and I have to make a campaign that's fun and I have to do all of the other work that it takes to run a game. And that's where the energy is. That's where the effort is, not in the book. The $85 is not helping me do that. The 85 bucks is giving me material hopefully to do that. But I have a benchmark in adventures, which is, do I have to do work to convert it to something I want to run at the table? And if I have to do work to convert it, it is now less than useless, right? It's less than zero, because now it's making extra work for me. Now maybe there are benefits to it, artwork and design, and I don't have to come up with the outline, and I've got new monster stat blocks, and maybe there's other things in the adventure they can use. But when you make me do a lot of work to turn an adventure into something that I want to run, it's almost always easier for me to just make my own adventure. So the idea that like well you get you know 39 cents an hour worth of material out of an 85 dollar book when you run it for 12 sessions that that's making the assumption that i couldn't do it otherwise and i can do it otherwise and honestly and many times when i run a homebrew campaign i they're better they're better than the ones that are run out of published adventures so I'm not not knocking all published adventures, but I'm certainly knocking the ones where I feel like I have to do a lot of work. So the other thing is like, I'm also taking this very, very valuable time that I have with my friends around the table where they have driven across town, they've told their families that they're not going to be home, that they're going to come and sit around our table and we're going to play this game. That time is extremely valuable. And what I expose them to for the time that they're spending at the table, what I expose myself to for the time that I'm spending to do the preparation and run it at the table, that is valuable. That's more valuable than the money that I'd be paying for it. So what I want to bring there, this is why I stopped playtesting adventures, unless it's my own, right? I don't really want to play test adventures because why am I doing work for the publisher of that adventure that's spending all of that time of all of my friends sitting around the table? So imagine if you took the hourly wages of all of those people that are sitting around my table and my hourly wages, whatever we make per hour, at like a day job or anything like that, and then think about how much time that's worth and then compare that to the price of the adventure. That is way more valuable. The time is very valuable and you really want to bring to them the best kind of, material you can bring to run a fun adventure. So in that case, the idea of like, oh, you're getting 39 cents an hour worth of value out of a published adventure, that's, I think that's the wrong way to think about it. And instead, you have to say, regardless of the cost of the adventure, is it worth spending our time, all of this very valuable time focused on a particular uh, adventure particularly if it's not working particularly well uh, you know i look back at some of the big campaign adventures i ran some of them i loved i loved wild beyond the witch light i loved tomb of annihilation i loved what are some other ones that i really loved? i loved curse I loved Curse of Strahd. There are many campaign adventures. There were some that were right on the edge. Horde of the Dragon Queen and Rise of Tiamat took a little work for me to run, but you know they're still memorable adventures, I like them. But there's a couple that I ran and I'm like, I look back and we all had fun, we all had a good time. Nobody felt like they wasted their time, but I know I had to do a lot of work to get those adventures in a way to get them to run. And I really wish I hadn't run them. Descent into Avernus is one of those adventures and Rhyme of the Frostmaiden are one of those adventures. Right? These are adventures that I ran and I didn't dig. Now, the interesting thing is Spelljammer I ran and I liked it and we had a really good time and I did get a good value. So actually, I actually, I've knocked Spelljammer because it doesn't have any source book material. But as an adventure, it was pretty good. And I think it's like $39 on Amazon. That's not terrible. That's actually, I mean, it's kind of expensive for an adventure, but it's still not terrible. And I really enjoyed that adventure. That one was worth it. The, the, the Spelljammer Light of Zaraxis adventure needed some work, but nothing that wasn't a ton of work for me to do. So that's a big thing. What are the what what kind of work do I have to do to make this product valuable for, for my table? So what are some examples of like great source books? The ones that I really grab onto. These are great examples of high-value RPG products. Things that you can get that you're going to be able to put on your shelf, use for years, get ideas from it, think about the artwork, just fuel your imagination. Even if you're not running in the campaign setting, it's valuable to dig into these. And I made a, I made a list of them that kind of are all over the map. Some of these are published by Wizards of the Coast, others are other publishers. Some are big, some are small, some are expensive, some are cheap. They kind of go all over, the, all over the map. But these are ones that I when I was thinking about this and digging through and looking around, these are the ones that grabbed me I go, wow, these are great examples of high value RPG products. I mentioned Eberron Rising from the Last War. You can still buy it i recommend you do because i don't know how long that book is going to be around and i don't know that we're going to be able to get a good deal on it by the way as we go into the holiday season you know you might wait till black friday to go pick these up because i these some of these might be on sale even cheaper and it might be the last time we see these books on sale for as cheap as we see them eberron rising from the last war fantastic book maybe the best wizards of the coast product as far as source books that i've ever seen van richten's guide to ravenloft really really good and what i like about this one is this one very much is a modular book you can break apart and use in different Different ways. If you ever saw my mashup of Wild Beyond the Witchlight with the Domains of Dread from Van Richten's Guide, really fantastic. Van Richten's Guide has dozens of campaigns, maybe, I don't know, about a hundred, but dozens of campaigns that you could run just from the blurbs that it's got in there. Really, really good product. The Midgard World Book, I've been using a ton. I've run it like almost a two-year Empire of the Ghouls game where I've dug deep into the Midgard World Book for what I've been using there. But I also used it for like my Scarlet Citadel game and there's so many regions of that world in that book. It's a huge book, 400 400 page book or something like that. So many different regions that you could use that you could squeeze different campaigns or adventures, wrap your lore in gods the masks really really cool I love that book Southlands is a specific region of, of Midgard but an excellent excellent book 300 some page book covers just one big region of Midgard but all kinds of different cities lands regions people threats all kinds of stuff you could do there really really fantastic book Southlands is an example of the kind of book I wish I got from Planescape right I wish I got like a Spelljammer or Planescape book that was like the Southlands book I like it because it's about specific locations with lots of specific stuff. Really like it. talderai Reborn. Fantastic book. Huge source book. Lots of stuff. Really fun, modern take on classic RPG settings. Tons of stuff you can do. Really, really cool book from, from Darrington Press and the Critical Role team. The Tolis book. Tolis is this huge city source book. It is not cheap. I think the physical copy is $250, but it's like a 600-page book about one massive city. This is the campaign setting that Monty Cook ran his third edition game. In. it's been revised since then you can pick up the pdf or you can pick up the physical book but when you read it there's so much stuff in there there's so many places you can go so many adventures that you could have in this one city really 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 big book but great big great big book You can get the tallest book for $150 or $167, including the the PDF. So you know it's expensive. That's an expensive product, but it is a massive book with a ton of material in it. It's got stuff you could use. I I got the Kickstarter for it. I certainly don't. I don't regret. I don't regret getting it. Then on the polar opposite, you have Curse Scroll One by Arcane Library. This is a zine that was put out by Arcane Library by Kelsey Dion as part of the Shadow Dark setting. Very, very small, inexpensive zine. has like a miniature campaign setting in it called the gloaming if you want to know more about the gloaming i'm running a whole shadow dark gloaming campaign you can see all the videos from my prep for it very very brief descriptions of stuff that are actionable and usable to build your own campaign i'm building this whole kind of world view campaign really really interesting so curse Scroll one is a good example of how small you can make a campaign setting and how little text you need in order to fuel a gm's imagination to be able to build something shadow of the demon lord is a game system by robert schwab but one thing that 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 schwab has done is the world that exists for shadow of the demon lord is incredibly detailed and varied really interesting very dark take the only problem with it is the world is sort of spread across a whole bunch of different Products that you have to go and find the individual products that talk about various regions of that setting. There isn't one great big setting book for Shadow of the Demon Lord. It would be really cool if there was because it would be more easily reskinable than other systems. However, the Shadow of the Demon Lord system is excellent. I love that system. It's a really cool system. The one way to get Shadow of the Demon Lord is to keep an eye out for bundles of holding. Robert Schwab has done periodically bundles of holding that include like huge packs of the Shadow of the Demon Lord set. And there's like 20, 30 bucks, but you get like a hundred PDFs. And even if you're not planning to run shadow of the demon Lord or that, that system in particular, diving into like his take on the Fae, his take on the hells, his take on all of these different regions of the world, the far North brilliant text really well written really really mind expanding stuff so take a look at the shadow of the demon lord world material as an example of really great source material that you can just digest and absorb and use in your own game is kandar again getting kind of on the other side uh, is is a city source book that MT M- Black wrote on Drive Through RPG. Five bucks, right? Five dollars, 112 pages. It is a brief, kind of like Curse Scroll One, a brief book that describes the city that you can use and you can drop into your game. He used this as sort of a, a catalyst for all of these other adventures that are around there. He even has an Iskandar players guide that's also dirt cheap, built on the 5.1 SRD, so that you can build characters that are tailored around this. I often point at Iskandar whenever somebody says like what are the kind of materials that I should use and actually we have a patron who asked this exact question what are the kinds of things that I should be building for my source books I want to publish a source book what should I do or I want to publish a campaign setting what should I do I often point at Iskandar as a good example of a campaign setting that you can build that is re- reasonable for a single publisher to be able to build at a price and with a level of material that you can that, that uh, that's reasonable for somebody to produce at a price point where somebody is willing to experiment with it to pick it up You're not going to want to start off the gate with writing your own version of Tolis because trying to convince people to spend $100, $150 on your book is not very likely. You also don't want to dump a whole ton of material when people don't know who you are and they don't know why. So, Izkandar is a really good example. And I would say Chris Scroll One. Both of those, if you have a real itch to write a published campaign setting with the desire of other people playing it, but you don't really have a huge audience, you don't really know who's out there, aim small. Write small, easily digestible, low price products where you're using stock art you know you're getting friends to edit it you're doing the layout in word you can you know make it it should be as good as you can make it but you don't necessarily have to spend a ton of money to make it and get it out there and get people an idea of why your setting is worth their time and their energy and their money is is a really good model to use for something like that i would say curse scroll one and Iskandar are really good examples of the kinds of the, the models that, that that you want to run so those are examples of the source books that I would recommend if you're looking for like a list like oh Mike what, what, what source books did you get I would say these source books wide range of different stuff everything from very highly published very highly produced books like Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft and Eberron independent publishers or large large independent publishers like like Kobold Press with the Midgard World Book and Southlands Tolis from Monty Cook Games Talderai Reborn from the Critical Role from, from Darrington Press Shadow the Demon Lord from Robert Schwab Curse Scroll 1 from Arcane Library and is Kendar from MT Black. I think that is an incredible range of different source books that show you the kind of value that you can get out of this stuff. Really, really, really great stuff. So I'm going to jump to a Patreon question because it re- results, re- relates to this, which is Matthew C saying, How would you go about publishing a campaign setting? For example, what do you need to have put together in order to get someone who could edit it and determine if it is valuable? And and I think again h- hitting this point, Curse Scroll One and Iskandar are the two kinds of products I would aim for: small, focused, low price point, low effort on your part to try to get it together and get it out there, and then focus heavily on what impact are you using? What what impact does this have for a GM? One big thing is this isn't for you to just spell out your big world that you love. You are writing something for game masters. You're writing something to help make my life easier. How is that thing you're writing making my life easier? How is it making it easier for me to run at the table? What are the cool things that are expanding my 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 mind on the world that I go, wow, that's a really cool idea. I wanna see what that's like when it actually manifests at my table tell me what manifests at my table where are the characters going to be involved where can they start where can they go that's why like having those like the five things about this world are so valuable because right off the bat you're telling me these are the five things that set my world apart or your world because now it's mine once i've bought it it's mine what are the things that set this world apart from everything else that's going on what from all the other possible campaign adventures but then think about how it is act table usable. What are the things that I can use at my table from this book that I bought? Give me introduction scenarios. Give me adventure hooks everywhere. Give me places to explore. Give me religions that make sense for the characters to either join or oppose. Give me all of these things and don't be fuzzy about it. Tell me specifically how I can use it for my game. But I also think what's really valuable is making it so that it's abstract from the game system itself. I don't need a lot of subclasses. I don't need a lot of new monsters. I don't need a lot of new magic items, right? Things that make sense for the game that should be in there. But backgrounds are fantastic. Like Backgrounds for characters are really good because it gives the players something they can hang on to to stick their hook into the campaign setting and saying that's where I'm part of it. Backgrounds are really good. Subclasses, sometimes people think subclasses that are tailored around a world really matter. I think you're just adding a bundle of mechanics and the likelihood they're going to get used is pretty low. I think backgrounds are far easier to use than than subclasses are. So I would focus on stuff like that. But if I were a new publisher that was focused on something, I would start small. I would get it out there. I would get people to start thinking about this. I would refine it and I would build off of it. So start with that starter set. Shadow Dark did this, right? The Shadow Dark RPG, before the Kickstarter was out, had a player guide and a GM guide for free on Drive-Thru RPG. playable. You could take this system, you could, get, you could download it for free and you could run it for your group and you could see if you liked it that's incredibly valuable that that tell me what that's doing i am in the middle of building a big campaign setting myself called the city of arches this has been on patreon i've talked a lot about this right now it's like 80 90 pages worth of material but i have been releasing it to patrons of Sly flourish over the past couple of years from just a very initial beginning stages where it was only 5 10 pages and people started grabbing it and talking about it and giving me feedback and i've been refining and thinking about it and and I always have in my mind how is this helping GMs? What can I offer? If I put something in here that has a design a specific design reason, tell people what it's about an example is that the core fundamental idea of the city of arches is that it is a whole city built on an ancient empire that used all of these archways to reach out to different worlds but over time the archways have gotten corrupted they don't work right anymore most of the time they're completely inactive so they don't actually operate in the daily world except every so often people come walking through from the other side and they're sort of one way there was an arch in some of the world they step through they end up here but they don't remember where they came from they don't remember how they got here what that means is it's a the reason why that design exists is so that players can play any race they want that unlike weird settings where you're like oh well i want to play an elephant person and a walrus guy and a dude made out of fire and wood and another one that's a fairy princess and you're like, well, why would all these people be wandering in a normal sort of, you know, low fantasy European setting? They all walk into a bar and everyone's like, why is there a walrus man and an elephant person and a guy that's on fire a, at a ferry all sitting around a table eating rations, right? In the city of arches, that totally makes sense. Oh, yeah, no, I came through the arches three years ago, right? So there's this reason why all of these different races are here. There's a design reason why those arches are in place, why the fundamental nature of this campaign setting is set, that anybody can be here and there is no pre set idea about why characters are the way they are. You don't have anything that says if a horned devil, I had this happen. If a horned devil walks through the archway, they might go become a potter, right? They're not evil anymore. They're like, well, they not necessarily. They might still be evil. And fairy princesses who come through might be evil. That's something I added in another section, that there's a whole other town called the City of Blades, which is another city off to the side of the City of Arches. That's like Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome. And there, it doesn't matter. Like, if you're, if power... If, if power and bloodlust was the thing that you found after you came through the archway, the city of blades is probably the city for you. And there's like a fairy princess who's, you know, got blood across her eyes, ha- carrying a pair of battle axes because she came through with the feeling of like what a horned devil was like. Well, the horned devil is making pots for people, right? The horned devil's an artisan. I wanted that to be a fundamental nature of the City of Arches, and I wrote it in there because it has a specific reason for being there. There's a specific way the players manifest with that. It's got character hooks. More than once, I've run the initial scenario that the characters have been recruited by the Arch Keepers, these people who know that somebody's going to step through the Arch, who want to meet them and make sure they're comfortable and make sure everything's good. And like, we like to have an adventuring party on hand in case things go awry. And then something comes through, like a horned devil, and the horned devil is like, my name is Glaucian, the... I don't remember. And they're like, yes, Glaucian, welcome. You're here. You're safe. Here's a basket. It's got some artisanal soaps. it's got some cheeses and crackers. There's a big towel. There's a really nice bath. The big, big pool to the north side of the village. Go to the pool. Swim in the waters. You'll feel better. But know that you're here among friends. And he's like, he drops his big spike chain. He grabs the, the basket. He goes, okay. And he wanders away. Right? I've done that scenario a lot. It's a really fun intro scenario to the adventure. And it's table usable. And that's really what we get to when, we, when we're when we talking about what kind of things you want to make for people. What's table usable? But make it small. Test it out. Try it. Make it 12 pages. See what people can do with a 12-page campaign book. Why is yours different than everything else? What can you do? Don't start with 300 pages and hope that you know and then spend thousands of dollars in editing and art and then no one you don't have an audience for it and nobody knows why they would use that instead of Tolus or instead of the midgard world book because you are competing with all those other books right for my attention you have to tell me why your campaign setting is so good that i want to run it over running one of these other ones and that's 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 a hard sell matthew i hope i hope that helped answer your question and i think we have covered the idea of what is value in rpg products what works well giving me material I can use for the rest of my life, giving me material to inspire me, to build my own adventures, stuff that I can go back to regularly, that stuff is super, super valuable. You will also find links to all of those products, all these outstanding products that I love. You can find links to all those in the show notes. This past week on the Sly Flourish Discord server, you can join the Discord server by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. The topic of conversation came up about the eight steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. I have a book, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. In this book, I outline eight steps for game preparation that are intended to help you uh, build and improvise and run games at the table. The conversation came up of it was tricky for people, I've heard this more than once from, from more than one group, that the understanding of the eight steps for preparation makes a lot of sense. You go through these, you sit down, you have time to prep for your game, you go through the steps, you think about what you want, you we put all the stuff down in your notes or wherever you put them down, and now you've got all these things. Those eight steps include review the characters, set up a strong start outline what potential scenes you might have, write down 10 secrets and clues, write down notable locations, outline notable NPCs, write down potential monsters the characters might fight, and write down what treasure the characters might acquire. Those are the eight steps, but you can find it in Return to the Lazy Dungeon Master. You can also find the sample for Return to the Lazy Dungeon Master, which describes these eight steps. Those eight steps make sense from a standpoint of game prep, but something that people have had trouble with is where do those things actually manifest when you're running the game? How do you use this stuff? So you have this, you've got your outlines, you've got all these eight different components to them. Where do they come out in the game? And a tricky bit is they don't, only a couple of them, really only one of them has a direct place in the game that you're going to run. All of the other ones are there to kind of give you the things you need to use to prepare so that when you're running the game and it goes whatever direction it goes, you have the components necessary to build what you need at the table. But there's still specifics about how you can use each step during the game itself, and we're going to talk about that today. So to get to the sample, because we're going to use the sample today to kind of talk about this stuff, you can go to slyflourish.com in the show notes go to return of the lazy dungeon master and in there is a check out the return of the lazy dungeon master preview pdf absolutely free to get it you click that and you immediately no sign up required you don't have to give your email address you get an 11 page sample of return of the lazy dungeon master and then in chap- talks about chapter offers all of chapter 2 which is the checklist of the eight steps and we're going to talk about each of these from this checklist to talk about how they manifest at the table i want to focus heavily on how do you, these things come out during the table So, number one, review the characters. Guess what? This doesn't necessarily manifest at the table. Instead, reviewing the characters is there to help you bring all of the information about the characters in your mind to help you do the rest of the steps while you're doing your prep. It's making sure that you have an understanding of the focal point of your adventure, which is the characters, what they're doing, what they want, what connections they have, what backgrounds they have, what they might get involved in. So, we review the characters first to get them in our mind and to think about all of the other steps and how they relate to those characters an example would be is this does the strong start tie to something that one of the characters did or a background one of the characters have like bruno's brother shows up right and you're like oh well bruno has a brother well now we got a connection to the character well, who's bruno's brother where did he come from right you get that information but you have a strong start of a bruno's brother showing up you could have a secret and clue. A really easy one is have a secret and clue that's tied to each of the characters. What's something that one of those characters might learn about themselves, or something that character is likely to know about something else? What some kind of connection that they have could manifest as a secret and clue. But we're using the characters. We're using our review of the characters to help fuel the other parts. It might be, hey, my character, my characters just hit fifth level. Durham just got fireball. Wouldn't it be really cool if he got to fight a lot of really small dudes that he could blow up with a fireball? Wouldn't that be fun if he faced a bunch of skeletons? that I know could be destroyed, and he gets to use that fireball for the first time and blow away 20 skeletons in one blast. So that's something that we could drop into the combat, right? We could throw it into monsters. Let's put lots of small monsters in there so that we can show off the kind of new capability that Durham has. That's why we put the characters in mind. Treasure is this magic item going to be valuable to somebody if so who or better hey the here are the characters which one hasn't really gotten a neat magic item what would be a cool magic item for that one character what would Winasia's magic item be i bet she really likes big spears so let's drop a really cool powerful spear in here maybe one that's tied to her background as a daughter of paranalia so we have an ancient daughter of perenalian spear that got lost in the underworld and she finds it that's how we use the characters. The strong start is probably the only step that has a direct, clear place when we're running at the table. The strong start is the first thing that happens in the game. You might do a description of, hey, who wants to tell me what happened in last game's session? And after you catch up to the point where you begin, now you say, here's the thing that happens. And as the GM, you drop that in. When you write your strong start and you say something like a floating skeleton is of a skeleton in the dungeon a skeleton begins is floating towards them you start with that right as you're standing there in horror you watch this unmoving skeleton floating through the air towards you in this incredibly clean weird room what do you do right and you get to the action as fast as you can here's the scenario what's the choice what do they do what happens next That has a clear place in how you run it. You write down your strong start as a situation that happens at the beginning of your session that draws the players in, draws the characters in. Something happens. What is it? Describe it. You describe what happens. You ask your players, what do they do? What do they want to do in this situation? Combat's a real easy one. You get attacked by a bunch of gnolls. Super easy, strong start. The outline of the potential scenes. Now... One thing I've learned, this is kind of a new way of thinking about scenes that I've i have been getting my head around, is the scenes, the outline potential scene step, step three, is a good catch-all for a lot of different things. It can include things like, what are the specific scenes that might happen in your game if you make the assumption you're going to follow those scenes? It could be a branch of a bunch of different scenes. What are the different kinds of scenes that might happen but might not? One of the things I've been doing recently is saying, what's next? What are the next three branches of this adventure that might go after the current set of scenes that they go through. What's happening after the next adventure that, th- you know, three hexes out, what's the next step that goes into the scenes. How do these manifest at the table depends on what happens during the game. You know, the strong start is going to happen. And then you might say, okay, then after the strong start is done, what's next? And it's possible that you could say, well, the, the next scene on my list is the next thing that happens or it could be that based on what happened in the strong start they have another path that they want to take you now are in the room you killed the by the way spoilers you killed the gelatinous cube in which the skeleton was floating and now do you want to leave the dungeon or do you want to turn back around and go back to those other hallways that you had what are the choices that they have what direction that they go so the scenes is a catch-all sometimes it's linear sometimes it's a bunch of parallel scenes sometimes it's a bunch of what if scenes it the, the the thing to understand about the scenes is that's the canvas of your paint it is, the, it is the way to understand what the boundaries are of what you think might happen today. It isn't saying what's gonna happen. It isn't outlining it in the way that you might think scene one, scene two, scene three, scene four, scene five. Sometimes it could be like that, but a lot of times it's just, what are the boundaries of the things I think might happen today? What do I need to be prepared to drop in to be prepared for the next session that I'm gonna run? So that's kind of how scenes work at the table. They might work as a sequence. They might just be scenes that you drop in when the opportunity is right. But the idea of scenes are not that you're building full big scenes that are intended to be run in your game. Scenes is the way to understand the framework of what's going to happen in the overall session. Secrets and clues. I was, I was, my my wife and I were laughing about this today because a tricky bit with secrets and clues is I feel like it's a really simple concept that you say, what are 10 things that the characters might discover anywhere in the next game? Anywhere they're exploring, anywhere that they're talking to, things that they remember based on their own history, things they pick up from, you know, objects in the world, things they see on mosaic walls. What are the things they might learn about? write those down in a list of 10 and I'll tell people and don't make sure to separate it from the element of discovery. So you don't know necessarily where the characters are going to discover it. You just have them in front of you. And the response is yes, but where do they discover them? And I said, wherever it makes sense. And they go, I get it. Okay. Wherever they make sense, but where's that? Right. And there's this kind of cyclic question of like, I can't tell you because I don't know where your game is going to go. You can't tell yourself because you don't know where the game is going to go. I can tell you lots of places where they can show up. The Lazy DM's companion has, I think, 40, something like that, 40 or 80 different places where you can discover secrets and clues broken out in different groups. NPCs tell you something. It's a discovery of a location. It's something the characters knew themselves, or it's like an object that they find, right? Like a bunch of different ways that, that characters can discover it, but we don't know. And I think part of what makes... The eight steps tricky to recognize is like how you run it at the table is because it doesn't define these things. It's leaving you a little bit uncomfortable because you don't know where the game is going to be and you want to know where the game is going to go but you can't know where the game is gonna go. And that's this like cyclic problem, right? And that's why eventually people start to figure it out. And they go, oh, I can put secrets and clues anywhere. And I'm like, yes, but it takes like three or four kind of descriptions of that before it really takes in. Secrets and clues are revealed when the characters are talking to somebody and that person knows one of the secrets and they say it, or the characters are exploring a wall and you say, there's a crazy mosaic on the wall that's showing like weird demons sacrificing people and say, I'd like to do a religion check. Or you do one, you roll a 13, you know that that demon is Glausian, or it's actually a devil, you know, the devil Glausian, and he's serving. And here's some information, the devil Glausian, right? And that was one of the secrets and clues that you drop in. Sometimes you'll actually like look at your secrets and clues and say, Check them off as you go. This NPC knew these four things. Sometimes they're just in your head and you say them and then afterwards you say, what secrets and clues did I give up? Fantastic locations can manifest many different ways in our story. The fantastic locations, a little bit like scenes is a catch-all that can hold a bunch of different kinds of things fantastic locations may be a dyson style dungeon map where you printed out a dyson map i did this a couple of times recently you print out a dyson map on a piece of paper you take a sharpie you write in little descriptions of each of the rooms and then you take a picture and you put it in your notes or that is your notes that's your fantastic location i have this dungeon i know the, the, the what the purpose of the rooms are and I know where they're going to start, and I'm going to go from there. That might be an example of a fantastic location. Here's a big dungeon map that you've annotated with with pen on paper, which I think is actually a really easy, fast way to do mapping is... Go to DysonLogos.com, find the map that fits the scenario you're looking for, print it out on a piece of paper, take a pen or a Sharpie, and write in one-word descriptions of the rooms. It takes like 10 minutes, and then you have a dungeon filled out that you're ready to run with. Fantastic locations might be different if the types of scenes you're running are different. If the characters are exploring an overland location, a fantastic location might be the ruined watchtower. And you might drop in, as the book states, you might drop in some aspects of this tower. What are some functional things that the characters might recognize? Recognize about this tower if you're handling like an encounter during travel you might drop in one of these encounters and you might say here are the things that that manifest at these different locations so fantastic locations can be lots of different things what they don't typically have is the inhabitants they you don't specifically say this room has these monsters in it or this location has this sometimes you do for boss fights and things like that or sometimes you know a scene and you already know that you're going to have all of it set up but a lot of times you don't so instead you have your fantastic locations and they're abstract from the people that you are going to drop in there because that's the next step which is outline important npcs the main reason that we put in our npcs is to remember their names so the way that this manifests at the table is during one of your scenes, during one of your situations, they meet one of these NPCs. You look down and you say, yes, you're going to meet this guy, the boatman, right? This guy is the the lamplighter. And you have his name. I already forgot his name, which is why I have it in my notes, right? I forget his name. It's not Charon, but like, you know tim timothy the lamplighter is rides around on a boat in the underdock and he lights lights so that the boats don't lose their way and you put down their names there so you don't forget their names that's really the reason the way it manifests is you go that's that guy's name and you look at the list and you say that's the npc that's there you don't really have to put a lot of information on the npc uh, maybe a little bit about motivation if you need it during your prep is where you're going to internalize it but the thing that you're really going to be referencing at the table are the names of the npcs right looking at that name so that you're able to describe it you really i don't feel like you need a lot more than that name once you've internalized what that NPC is like, what they want, how they, how they act. And a lot of times the, how they act and what they want evolves during the conversations you're having with your players. But you look at the NPC. now. How, where, where does that NPC show up? That's up to you. Kind of like a secret and clue. The NPC could show up in different things. Maybe they're tied to a scene. Maybe they're tied to a specific location. However they arrange, maybe they wander by when the timing is right. You know, It's sort of situational like a secret and clue is. When the situation is right, that's where that NPC shows up. Sometimes that could be really specific and clearly known. Sometimes it might just drop in another way. Choosing relevant monsters. This is a main difference between how the eight steps operate and how a lot of traditional game prep operates, which is we don't tie monsters to the location. So when we're running it at the table, we look at the situation, we look at the location and say, does it make sense that there are monsters here? If so, which ones and and how many of them? And this is where we play with the dials. We could look at it and say, does it make sense that there would be a, a, a gelatinous cube there? If we want it to be a really hard fight, what if it's a gelatinous cube plus a bunch of other oozes? Or what if it's a gelatinous cube plus creatures that are trying to push you from the other side to go fall into the gelatinous cube? We could make it really hard. We could also say, no, it's actually going to be different. That because of the way the scene is operating, maybe the gelatinous cube isn't chasing the characters right away. Maybe it's just standing there. And now it's more of a scene of exploration. So when we write down our list of monsters, we're saying, what monsters are might appear somewhere in the next session we're going to run and we just list them out maybe we list them out with page numbers to particular books that we're going to run maybe we put a hyperlink into it to a monster stat block that we have somewhere else but you list those monsters in some cases you might have the number of monsters if you say like we're going to have this old ruined castle the castle is taken over by a bunch of bandits and there's actually a bunch of monsters underneath you might list like well how many bandits and where are those bandits and what are they doing so if you're building more of a situation based one of these infiltration steps adventures where you know that you have a bunch of different inhabitants there and they're doing different things the monster section is a good place to say there are a total of 14 regular bandits seven of them are sleeping or doing some other kind of recreation while the other seven are wandering around the outside looking for infiltrators that way you can kind of keep that in your monsters how it manifests at the table however is given the situation that's occurring while you're running the game you say does it make sense that there are monsters here or if the characters say we're going to look up at the ramparts and see if anybody's there you know ah there's probably seven bandits but there's probably only two or three of these because there's two or three at the other ones too but then you can say well it's nighttime and there's more or fewer of them or there's." another battle going on someplace so there's now fewer of them there's only one bandit for each of the watchtowers because the other ones are all off doing something else the game can evolve But the value of having the monsters in a list is you know which ones you're going to need. You just get to decide where they go at any given point and how many there are at any given point. That could be based on the situation that's occurring on the game, which is where you should probably start, but then also on what you think would be fun for the next part of the game. Does it make sense that the characters go into a really hard fight or are they going to go into an easier fight? Maybe you have lesser or more monsters, depending on how that's going to go. But it's abstract. And then the last one is magic items. So... It's important that we focus on magic items because magic items really matter to the characters, right? The characters want to have interesting magic items. They want to watch the characters evolve. It's a way that their character evolves that the, the DM is directly responsible for. But again, we don't have to say where they find it. So one of the things I like to do is I drop three or four different treasure parcels in my notes with some magic items. I'll look and say I'll do magic items randomly, or sometimes I'll pick magic items based on the character, but I don't necessarily say where they find it. And that way, if the characters are wandering through a dungeon, you can move the treasure to the area that they find it. If they miss it, you you don't have to waste it you can still you can still identify treasure in certain certain rooms you want it to make sense sometimes the treasure is with the big boss sometimes the treasure is in a small treasury somewhere else and if they miss it you still have the parcel you can drop it in somewhere else but you have this mobile block of treasure that you can decide to drop in when the circumstance makes sense or when you really think it's time for the characters to have a nice upward beat it's sort of like the same thing with monsters you you can decide if you want to drop in a lot of monsters To put the pressure on the characters, right? And you can do that during the game. Likewise, if you want to say, I want to to have an upward beat. I want the characters to be excited. Well, maybe they find a secret room and maybe in that secret room is a treasure vault nobody knew about and they get to discover this pile of treasure. So that's that's how we do it. So one of the things that I think is, the ways I like to describe these eight steps is that you're cooking at the table. You have a, a whole bunch of dishes of ingredients that you prepare ahead of time. And you put them out on the table like a hibachi, right? I always talk about like the hibachi metaphor that you go to a hibachi grill and there's all of these little dishes of foods that have already been prepared, seasoned, all the stuff is ready to go. But how you cook it can change depending on what's happening during the situation, how the scenes are set up, what kind of monsters are in those scenes, where they find treasure, what direction they take. And the advantage of doing it all this way with those abstraction layers in there is that the game can evolve in ways that even you didn't know were going to happen. Otherwise, you're building things where you build out your entire entire scenes. Here's the scene. Here are the monsters that are in it. Here's the kind of scene it's going to be. Here's the treasure they get for doing it. And it's all encapsulated in one block and they run through three or four or five blocks in a game, but they can't really divert. They can't really change it. They can't really fixate it. I'm not saying that's like the total wrong way to do it. What I'm saying is when you build your whole game out by focusing on one scene after another, that's pretty much exactly where it's going to go. And another way to do it is to take all of the components that make up those scenes and split them out into these groups. Your start, your scenes, your secrets and clues, your locations, your NPCs, your monsters and your treasure. Split them all out, prep them independently, then run your game, see where they go, see what happens. You have your scenes to give you an outline of where they might go. So if if nothing's really happening, you can always fall back to your scenes about where they're going to head to. And then from the scene, build out those components. So I hope this gave another little look at the way of thinking about the eight steps and how they actually manifest in your game. I think why this is a tricky problem is because you won't know how you're going to drop these things into your game until you're actually running the game. That makes us uncomfortable. We wish things were better prepared, but I, I, I have pretty good evidence. I've heard from lots of people. I felt it myself games go better when you walk in without a predetermined expectation about how things are going to go. And if instead you've built yourself and giving yourself the tools to be prepared to improvise these scenes during your game, the game is going to be a lot more fun. So I hope you enjoyed that. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, we have the Sly Flourish Patreon Q&A. Anybody, any patron of Sly Flourish can ask an RPG-related question there. I answer every question on Fridays. Some of those questions I bring forward and we talk about here on the show, other ones become catalysts for other topics, other videos, or other articles that I write about elsewhere. Plate says, you've been talking a lot about the D&D update coming in 2024, and I was wondering, are you happy with WotC's direction? I want to see the next iteration of the game that takes the good parts of 5e and builds upon them, rips out the guts, and leave the bones. Give us leaves uh, leaves leave the bones. Rip out the guts and leave the bones. Ugh. Give us guidance for role playing as players and DMs and how to run theater the mind combat. That'd be nice. Reset the subclasses and trim out a lot of the fat that's not needed. Clean up the core classes and enhance the play experience. Lastly, fix the broken spells that are frustrating to deal with. I hope you gave them that feedback, right? If that's what you want, I think the an option is to go through one of their playtest forms and in the comments let them know the specific things you want. But as far as how am I happy with the direction? I am working very hard to not care and I am instead trying very hard to focus on making sure that my, I, I myself and those of you who care to listen to my nonsense can instead build the game that we want regardless of what anybody does, regardless of what Wizards does, regardless of what other publishers do. I want to make sure my happiness with a hobby is not dependent on anyone else. And I've, I've got good news. I'm pretty much there that there are so many different versions of things that are coming out, so many excellent products from so many different publishers. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be able to take what I want and build the kind of game that I want. And I would recommend that we all do it. I have said it many times before. Don't let your happiness with D&D or 5e or the tabletop role-playing community depend on what Wizards of the Coast does. Because if you do that, you're probably going to be disappointed. I would be disappointed. Because even if they do fantastic stuff, it might not be the fantastic stuff you wanted. It might be fantastic stuff somebody else wanted. One thing that Wizards has to do is make sure that their products are as universally valuable as they can be. But sometimes that makes them too abstract and we don't get the specific thing that we want. They have a lot of different cost measures that they have to keep in mind. They have vice presidents with income goals, you know, with profit margin goals and things like that. We don't wanna get bound up in that. Instead, we want the products that help us run awesome games for our friends. We want whatever products we get. And I feel like we are in the best state I've ever seen for this hobby in the 40 years, 40 years, 30 years, 35 years, 35 years that I've been in this hobby. I think we're better off today than we've ever been. I've got tons and tons of source books all over the place that I can use. I've got many different role-playing games that are fantastic systems. Some of them 5e based, other ones are not 5e based. I'm enjoying all of them. I really, really want Wizards of the Coast to make awesome 2024 new versions of d and I would love and I really hope that those books are fantastic. I, I seriously doubt that they're going to completely suck, right? I think probably they're going to land somewhere in the middle. There's going to be some things about them that go, yeah, I really like that. And some things are like, why did they do that? I don't, the question is, isn't going to be better than the 2014 books? I don't know right? We'll have to see. I would expect there are going to be definitely people who feel that the 2014 books were better. I'm almost certain that that's going to be the case. Whether they are or not is really up to each of us. There are probably going to be things that were in 2014 that we liked that they got rid of. There are probably new things that they add that we don't. Very likely we're going to see that. Is it going to completely suck? Probably not likely. Is it going to be completely awesome? Probably not likely. Is it going to be somewhere in the middle? More likely. So, I really want them to be good. And most importantly, and I talked about this last time, about what we want from Wizards of the Coast and what we really want from them is to have strong starter sets that can bring people into the hobby. I want them to spread the D&D brand as far as possible. I want them to bring in as many people as possible into this hobby because I think they're in a unique spot to be able to do that. And I think that they need to have a really strong, low cost, easy to run starter set that shows how awesome D&D is and then get them in. And then I think they need to have a strong set of core books that are good enough that people will use them and run and play the game And enjoy the game. And then they can get into the whole rest of the hobby. They don't like certain things in there. They learn about house rules and how to fix it. They say there aren't good exploration rules. They pick up uncharted journeys and they add new exploration rules. They don't like the way the monsters are designed. They grab MCDM's flea mortals and they use monsters from flea mortals. We want them to come into the hobby. So I want wizards to act as a good funnel for people to make their way into the hobby. I want them to bring people into the hobby. That to me is what's most important. The details of the 2024 books, I'm going to have four different versions versions of D and D five versions to choose from next year. I'm not too worried that they nail everything perfectly. I think I I have tales of the valiant. I have level up advanced five E, I have the 2020 2014 books. I have the 2024 books. I have cubicle seven D 20. I'm going to have a lot of different versions, but I think number one, most important thing is that we separate our happiness and our joy from the hobby away from the directions of any one group or company or person that we look wide for what we want to bring in to make our game enjoyable. Mark G says, Where does Wizards where does Wizards of the Coast officially announce Dungeons and Dragons news on the internet? DD Beyond doesn't seem to have a news or update section. It has a community update, but that doesn't seem to cover basics like product releases. Am I missing something simple and obvious? I don't think you are. I, I would say if you really want to keep an eye on like what I, I think the the D and D Beyond homepage certainly talks about new product releases. They have a tendency of going real far past the product as soon as it comes out. I think if you go to the D and D Beyond homepage right now and you look for anything revolving Fandelver, it's not even on the front page anymore. This book just came out. It's like three weeks old, four weeks old, and it's not even on the page anymore. Instead, it's all about Deck of Many Things, which is delayed right? So they don't even, not only do they not have anything about, uh, about Shattered Obelisk, this adventure that came out, they don't even have anything about Planescape on their homepage. And that's because the, oh, there it is, right? So you go down and you get Planescape Adventures of the Multiverse now available. There's one article, there's a preview Planescape character options for your multiversal adventure. So if you go back far enough, you can get their most current product. d and Beyond's front page is now a marketing page. It is not a news page. It is a way for them to stir up interest in new products that are coming out which means they are always looking ahead they're not looking behind and that means that by the time a product hits they're already done talking about it right by the time planescape comes out they're like yep it's out hey let's talk about deck of many things right or hey planescape is out you know yeah yeah shattered obelisk right planescape right and especially recently because they've come out with i think like a new product within a month right it's been the, the the release cycle has been so fast it's easy to lose track but like you see all this planescape 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 right plane 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 there's not even anything about shattered obelisk on here as far as i can tell right i did shattered obelisk and there's no article about shattered obelisk so really the dndb on homepage homepage probably not the best place to keep up with news if you're asking my opinion i like nworld I go to nworld.org for my news. They cover the whole industry. They don't just cover Wizards of the Coast. They have a good like news recap section where they talk about the big things that are going on. They cover a lot of different topics. They cover a lot of new products. They actually have a list of Wizards of the Coast products on the site. But you can see things like Chains of Asmodeus, this 286-page Nine Hells adventure book. Not anywhere under the D&D Beyond. It's made by Wizards of the Coast. And D&D Beyond doesn't talk about it at all. I don't think they've ever talked about it at all. It's on the DMs Guild, but how would you know that? But then you see things for Blades in the Dark, the deck of many things. So I really like nworld.org as a news page. They have multiple editors that are keeping up with new news. They have an RSS feed, so you can follow the RSS feed. That, to me, is the best place to get to get news for, for the whole RPG um, market. Now, of course, they're going to push their own products, too. Nworld is a publisher. So, hey, they have a Kickstarter come out. You're always going to hear about that. Sam M says, how would you adjust and we have two questions about this. We're going to cover two questions with one statement. So I'll read both questions and then we'll talk about the answer. How would you adjust the deadly encounter benchmark to account for enemies coming in waves instead of all being present in the beginning? I feel like there should be some sort of upward adjustment to account for the enemy's reduced damage output and the ability to focus fire. Obviously doing too much math is antith- antithetical to the lazy DM approach, but if you or anyone has found a quick rule of thumb like the deadly benchmark for each wave is one half of the normal deadly benchmark that would be great. I'm confident my hy- hypothetical example would not work just using his illustration and uh, Syrian O says I've recently been thinking about encountering benchmark as players are getting into high levels and have more resources to spend. Uh, I've been using the Lazy Encounter Benchmark to great success in my campaign. Still, my six players are about to hit level nine, and I'd like to start incorporating back-to-back gauntlet-style encounters. More waves of more waves of combatants. Think fighting through the courtyard, up the castle steps, and encountering the boss inside to save the prisoners. I'm curious how you might budget, difficult, uh, budget the difficulty of a set of combat encounters in order to mitigate the number of dials you're adjusting mid-combat, and ideally to avoid the total wipe at the boss stage. So both of those are really kind of hitting the same question, which is when you take encounters and you sort of mash them together, how does the encounter benchmark work? So, number one rule with the Encounter Benchmark is that the, the Lazy Encounter Benchmark, by the way, if you want to know more about the Lazy Encounter Benchmark, you can find a link in the show notes. A quick abbreviation of the Lazy Encounter Benchmark is, after you have built a combat encounter and you want to determine if it could be potentially deadly, you uh, compare the sum total of challenge ratings of monsters to the character, to the total of character levels. An encounter may be, may be deadly if the sum total of monster challenge ratings is greater than one quarter of the sum total of character levels if they are fourth level or below. If they're above fifth level, then, or if they're fifth level and above, it's half of character levels. So what you do is you add up all of your character levels and divide it by four, and that's your deadly encounter benchmark for characters fourth level and below, and if your sum total of monster challenge ratings is greater than that number, you are in danger territory. You do it at half of character levels if the characters are fifth level and above. So you add all your character levels together. So an example is, let's say you have five six level characters. That's If you add all the character levels together, you have 30. You divide it in half and it's 15. That tells you the sum total of character some total of monster challenge ratings that you could have in a battle before things go into the danger zone. It doesn't work for a single monster if you want to know if a single monster is going to be too hard a single monster may be deadly if its challenge rating is 150 percent of the average of character levels so if you have six level characters and you if you have a ninth a cr9 monster or cr10 monster that's when you're getting into the danger territory now all it is is like a gauge it's not saying it absolutely will be deadly and you're totally wrong don't ever do it it's saying it's just going to be very very dangerous and it could be potentially deadly if you cross that threshold so that's the key to the encounter balance that's the key to the lazy encounter benchmark again you you can find a link to it in the show notes if you want more details on that but when it comes to using it for waves we want to keep in mind that this is a loose gauge it's not a perfect representation of how things work and instead what i would do is i would still break things down into the individual encounters Even if you have a bunch of waves and look at the deadly encounter benchmark for each of those encounters and say, is this one going over deadly? Is this one going over deadly? And is this one going over deadly? And then you get a gauge and you can say like, okay, one's going to be easier. One's going to be harder or something like that. The key to waves of combatants is how much time do the characters have between waves? So if the characters are kill their last monster before the next first monster shows up, that's going to be easier than if they overlap where you've only killed half of the current monsters and a whole other wave of monsters comes in. So the difficulty here is going to escalate depending on how close together those encounters go. If they have the equivalent of a short rest between those encounters, they're going to be significantly easier than if they have one encounter right after the other with no opportunity for a rest. That's where you want to look at each encounter and say, okay, this could be even deadlier. There's no good math that's Going to get you there. There isn't a formula like one half of the normal de- deadly benchmark. You probably don't want to have each one of them be deadly. And you might want to say, I'm going to save the deadly one for the end. But this is where the dials of monster difficulty really matter. And the interesting thing is when you're running waves of combatants, you have access to a dial you typically don't, which is the number of monsters. And you have a whole other dial you can use, which is how close together are these waves. And while you're running the battle, you can gauge like, should I, do I want to put the pressure on? In which case I'm going to have a wave come in early. Do I want to take the pressure off? In which case I'm going to have a wave come later. Do I want to reduce the pressure overall by reducing the number of monsters that i was expecting to run or did they have a really easy time and now i'm going to increase it and in between each wave you can turn these dials you can decide do i want to compress the total battles together do i want to extend them out do i want to reduce monsters or increase monsters do i want and then of course you have the other dials of increasing or decreasing their hit points increasing or decreasing their number of attacks and increasing or decreasing the amount of damage they do all of those dials you have to get that battle to feel the way you th- you think it should feel for the situation that's going on and for the fun of the game but there's no the, the benchmarks can st- i would still use the benchmark on individual waves just to give you a gauge of how they are are they half of what the deadly benchmark is okay they're probably going to be pretty easy for that wave are they equal to the be- deadly benchmark or above it those are going to be pretty hard and then, if you really, you know, if they're having an easy time, you stack it together. I one important point: I probably wouldn't run waves of combatants against characters that are below fifth level, unless they're really, really weaker. So you could, but you're definitely going to want to dial down the difficulty of those battles because characters that are fourth level and below don't have a lot of ways to handle a lot of monsters fifth level and above you get spells like fireball you get you know ability multiple attacks for 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 a lot of the melee classes you have access to things that can help you handle waves of combatants that you don't really have when you're first to fourth level so that's one thing to consider for the waves of combatants is be, be a lot nicer about them before b- below fourth level or fourth level or below and then when they hit fifth level you can start to dial them up so i hope this answers the question about how to run waves of combatants and how it kind of works with the lazy encounter benchmark the key is you have the benchmark on one side and you have the dials of monster difficulty on the other and you can use these things together to really tune a battle the way you want the interesting thing about waves is you have a fifth dial and that fifth dial is how compressed are the battles how much do they overlap with one another i think that can that can really work so sam and Sierra, i hope that that answered your questions Stapled Spine says, my party's home base city currently has a fighting pit gladiatorial arena built around a tourism pole. Have you dabbled in an arena fight? One shots. What worked? What didn't? What are some great ideas you had on this topic that you'd like to share? James Intercaso, Scott Gray and myself wrote a book called Fantastic Layers, which has 23 different layers you can drop into your 5e game. They are leveled from first level to 20th level. They cover a huge swath of stuff. They're intended to be either really short adventures or specific boss battles that you can drop into longer adventures they include waves of combatants like we were just talking about so if you want to see examples of those and how they manifest you can see them in fantastic layers one of the layers itself is called those who are about to die i had the joy of writing this one and it is a gladiatorial based fight And it includes waves of combatants and includes boss fights and includes weird things that gladiators do. And it includes all this stuff. But a couple of the things that I would do and that we did in this one that I think work really well for a gladiator fight is gladiator fights could be really boring. If they're just about you fighting other monsters in a gladiator pit, why are you there? What are you fighting for? What can you learn while you're fighting? Like you, you don't want just combat for combat's sake. You want, you still want to treat this like other scenes in a role-playing game which is what do you learn one of the neat things we did with those who are about to die is the idea of hacking the dungeon hacking the arena so there's a whole big arena that's going on but there's also these pits and you can see these dotted lines here you can actually get inside of the things that are running the arena you can get to the machinery you can get to the area where they have caged beasts you can dork with things that aren't intended to be dorked with to make the whole battle go differently you're also the, the way we set up this scenario is that you might either be captured and thrown into the gladiator pit or you might be breaking into the gladiator pit while things are going on to go do something else so it's it, it's a great way for you know to think about, why the gladiator fight is going on so fantastic way to do battles with multiple combatants but also think about like how can they hack the arena what are the different machinery that's operating inside the arena and how can they mess with it who's there running the show what's going on behind so you can see we have this arena of blood we have like rage one the rage of demons is an example of different scenarios that might take place in a fight. And they're, they're set up as waves. Wave one, Rage of Demons. Wave two, the Dread Forest. And wave three, the Angels of Blood. And the idea is you have these different stages. But then I think in the end here, we have a whole bunch of different ways where you can change up the arena. We have different goals about why you're in the arena, what's going on there, different environments that are messing with things, what might happen on the small platforms, what happens on the large platforms, all different kinds of things that we offer you know and and different kinds of creatures that you could use in these in these in these opponents. So this is actually a very flexible arena setup that shows you how to run a gladiatorial arena. But a big one is why are the characters there and and how can the story be driven forward by their battles here? What if they have to go to an arena and they're fighting people but they have to rescue somebody in the middle of it. Right? Fascinating stuff. So Don't just make it a big battle in an arena with a bunch of monsters on one side and the characters on another. What are the environmental effects that could occur, but how could they dork with the environmental effects in ways that aren't intended to be that aren't intended to be used those are some of the things I would do with an arena fight but you want to see an example of what I think a good arena fight is those who are about to die in fantastic layers is the way that the the way that I would take a look at it friends I want to thank you all for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in tabletop role-playing games I hope you enjoyed the show if you like this show and you want to see more things that I've produced other things that I've created elsewhere the best way to see all of the work that I do is to subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter it is absolutely free to sign up you get a free adventure generator for signing up and you get a weekly RPG-related newsletter sent directly to your inbox every week. You can also support me directly on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of excellent features, a dedicated Discord server, the monthly Q&A, City of Arches source sourcebook, a whole bunch of exclusive adventures, a bunch of tools to help you run your games, lots of stuff that you get for being a patron of Sly Flourish. And you can pick up any of my books, including Fantastic Layers, but also all of the Lazy DM books, the Lazy Dungeon Master's Guide, uh, the Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, Lazy DM's workbook, Lazy DM's companion. Forge of Foes is almost going to be up there, including a hardcover version next week. I think we're going to have the hardcover version on there. And all of my fantastic book, Adventures, Lairs, Runes of the Grender Root, and Fantastic Locations are all available on the Sly Flourish bookstore. Thank you very much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.